was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, Tony-nominated actor and director Gabriel Berry. Gabriel Berry spent five years performing internationally with the Richard Morse Mime Theatre and went on to appear on tour in Barnum and on Broadway in Rags, Starmites, Anna Karenina, and Ain't Broadway Grand. He then made his directorial debut with Andrew Lippa's John and Jen and went on to direct productions including Broadway's Amazing Grace, the premiere of Almost Maine, Memphis, Camille Claudel, Cinderella, Andrew Lippa's The Wild Party, and many musicals at Goodspeed Opera House, including Finian's Rainbow, Billy Elliot, and Pippin. He is currently in development on the upcoming Dolly Parton musical, Here You Come Again. He is also directing the December 12th concert of Your Own Thing at Symphony Space, which will benefit the Red Bull Theater and feature previous guests Leslie Margarita, Tova Feldshu, Ken Page, and more. You won't want to miss that concert, so make sure to check the episode description for a link to buy tickets. And now, without further ado, here's Gabriel Barry. Well, I'd love to start by asking you, how did you first become interested in theater? Oh, in theater in general. Wow, we're going way back there. <laughs> uh, I grew up in Vermont. My dad was a preacher in the Episcopal Church. He was he was not, you know, fire and brimstone or anything like that, because he was Episcopalian, not Southern Baptist. But he uh, def definitely had a flair for the theatrical. So I think I got it from him. Um, moved around a lot growing up. So I always learned that being coming a, a class clown was a quick way to make friends. <laughs> so I uh, learned that through humor, I was able to uh, make friends more quickly. And then I worked in, in high school years. I, I uh, just got really interested in drama. And I was I would be skiing on the weekends in Vermont and, and during the weeks when I could. But um, but my my passion was really doing theater. It was my uh, English teacher in, in high school that sort of got me interested. And I'm still in touch with him today, happily. Wow. And, uh, so it started in high school. And then I had a choice about where to go to university and chose because I knew I'd never regret it going to uh, an acting school in New York. So I came to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts here right out of high school and uh, started working right away as a puppeteer and many other things once I got out of school. And um, uh I've just made made a made a career in theater since then. I've been directing for about half of the time and acting for about half of the time. Oh yeah. And did you have that directing instinct early on or? It's a good question, Charles. I I uh remember I was lucky enough as an actor to work on a lot of new shows and new musicals especially, but new plays too and and uh I remember one of the things I would do to keep myself occupied um when I was, you know, waiting for 
my next scene or <laughs> to, to, uh, to, you know, I would absorb, of course, observe directors working all the time and learn from them. But I remember sort of having out-of-body experiences and kind of looking down at the rehearsal room or the stage and kind of imagining how I might solve a problem that a director might might be, be facing or an actor might be facing. And I found myself sort of playing a, a sort of mental game of uh, sort of what would I do if I were if I were directing, not really consciously thinking that, but just I remember coming up with solutions and and I loved having ideas for directors, whether it it had anything to do with my character or my performance or not. <laughs> and so I would always throw out ideas and most directors really, really appreciated that. And um, uh, so it started then. And then, uh, you know, after working in the business for over 20 years or so as an actor on and off Broadway and touring throughout the world uh, as a performer, I began to realize I, I knew a little bit more about who I was as a person. And that's when I started feeling like, like I had something to say as a director. And, um, and so I had an opportunity to direct a show uh, called John and Jen. It was the first show I ever directed by Andrew Lippa. And, uh, we did a reading of it up at the Goodspeed Opera House where I was performing as an actor. And I got Michael Price, who ran the theater then, to uh, let me use the facility to rehearse late at night and do a reading with Andrew in the show. And, and I was uh, directed it and um, and a reading of the, we did a reading of it there and, and it went really well. And then came up with an idea for the second act because it was only written as a one act originally. And, and it, and it, uh, um, uh, came together. They, the, the writers, Tom Greenwald and Andrew Lippa wrote the second act in a few months. And, um, we invited Goodspeed down to a reading of the full show we did in New York. And they called us right away and said, we'd love to have you open our season at the, at the smaller Chester theater in Chester, Connecticut the next summer. And so that was the first directing job I, I had. And, since then, I've done over 20 shows at, at good speed, and um, they became sort of my training ground as a director. But I've obviously worked many, many other places now, including internationally, and and uh, I just love it. I I think feel I love being in rehearsal, but I love the planning and the organization and the uh, sort of relationship building in the creative process as well. So so um, now starting to do a little more writing as as well as part of that process. So I, I I love it. I knew early on I'd want to make a career in the theater and luckily I've been able to. Right. And so speaking of uh, working internationally, I know one of your first jobs was with a mime theater where you toured many countries and all that. And what is the sort of unique skill of learning to mime well and and <laughs> um, that process? Well, uh, this was with a mentor of mine named Richard Morse. He was the brother of Robert Morse, a better known actor perhaps who recently passed uh, and Richard incidentally years later would also introduce me to Trisha Paluccio a wonderful actress who is now my wife of 21 years and we got to perform in the wonderful play Cyrano de Bergerac together where I played Cyrano and she played Roxanne out at Shakespeare Theatre of New Jersey so Richard was a big influence on my life and uh, I was part of his mime theater and mime really at that time in the in this was a while ago 70s and 80s was as dance in general was uh, experiencing a real resurgence in this country of interest and money and um, and uh, profile and uh, people 
really were gravitating to seeing more dance and more physical theater. And so this was part of that wave of popularity. And uh, um, the idea is that uh, as an actor, you know, our our body and our voice are our instrument. And so I got into mime and that sort of physical training with that thought in mind that that the more I could control my body and the more I could economize and know what my body was doing at any given time, the more the more in charge of it I will be on stage and the more I can use it to draw focus to any particular moment or, or gesture that I want to make. And so that's what I started training. Um, but that sort of led to a, a, a career, if you will, of a few years where I was performing what we called non-speaking theater, which was basically the same thing as acting, but but it's doing it without words, which forces your body to to do more of the storytelling. And it was really great training for me. And I use it today when I direct and certainly whenever I perform um, still uh, to just understand the power of, of physical uh, body and and the power of stillness uh, as well. So it, it was a really a, a great training for me um, in many ways, in terms of storytelling and uh, use of my my own instrument. And it was it's a physical training very similar to a dance training, but you also are dealing with you know how to create uh, illusions and 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 that just takes practice and technique like like any discipline. And do you find that the audiences across the globe are different than the ones in New York or in America in general? Is what they like different or how they respond? Yeah, really interesting question, Charles. There, there are definitely differences, of course. We're, we're different people. But I uh, found right away that I, I immediately was more surprised and, and focused on how the same we all are. And it was remarkable to me and still is because I work now in 30, 40 countries as an actor and a director. And it's remarkable to me that we could be performing a, a piece under the stars in Afghanistan or in Mexico City or in Seoul, Korea, South Korea, and people will laugh at the same thing. And I found this with mine where we were not performing non-verbally so we could go anywhere. But I also now work in all of those countries um, uh, doing full-scale musicals, some of them brand new, some of them uh, from Broadway, um, um, and they're always in the native language. But uh, even though I don't speak those languages fluently, I work with assistants and translators, and 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 you know right away um, when an audience is feeling the same same thing that an audience anywhere feels. Now there are cultural differences, of course, and cultural connections that people make with any given character or plot or story. But uh, all in all, the, the most gratifying and, and perhaps surprising thing was how much the same we actually are. Um, and that's been actually really rewarding. And one of the things that propels my work in the theater is celebrating that and how, um, you know, through entertainment, uh, boundaries and barriers can really truly be broken down. I don't think it's just hyperbole or po uh, Pollyannic to say that. Yeah. And when did you decide to ultimately leave this mind theater and start auditioning for Broadway and, and all that? It was while I was there. I was only, I was there three or four, five years or so. And uh, I, uh, there was a show called Barnum on Broadway at the time starring Jim Dale. And they were uh, mounting a national tour of the show. 
And I auditioned, to, I think I had six auditions for it. It was a very rigorous audition process that lasted somewhere around four to six months, I think. And they were all, all the auditions were on stage at the St. James Theater. So it was really exciting to me. Um, and I was a non-equity actor at the time because I'd just gotten out of acting school. So that was my first equity job. I got cast to play the ringmaster on that first national tour after all those auditions and I loved it. And it um, reinforced uh, my, what, what had already been an inclination for, um, of mine to uh, study circus skills and circus arts as part of my uh, background and sort of, a, I considered it part of my toolbox as a, as a performer because a lot of the characters I played could take advantage of those kind of skills. So those all came to fruition. Uh, doing that show and that became a bread and butter show we called it uh, back in the day as an actor because there would be many different productions of it around the country and I could always get a job if I needed one uh, doing doing a production of Barnum somewhere. Um, there's been talk more recently about revivals of the show and I'd love to do one someday as a director now because I, uh, I feel like it's a really wonderful piece beautiful score by Cy Coleman and uh, and that was my uh, my emergence into again, as we called it, the speaking theater, and my first equity job. So I started working after that, um, doing Shakespeare as well as new musicals and new plays, uh, on and off Broadway as well as uh, touring uh, and regional theater. Um, and, and if you were to direct a revival of Barnum today, which I would love to see, are there any changes that you would want to make from the way that it was originally done, or? Well, I don't want to direct any show that's been done before without uh, some new approach to it. Now, not necessarily an arbitrarily new approach, but I'd want to look at how what the show means to people today, uh, how we relate to, to Barnum and the, and the person and the personality of Barnum. I mean, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, which I also worked uh, at at one point. It, doesn't even exist anymore. So, I mean, uh, there's, I'd want to uh, just acknowledge or or respond to those changes in time and also where we were performing the show and so on, as I would always do, respond to those things. Um, and I, you know, the, the Joe Layton directed the original show and I thought his approach to it with David Mitchell as the set designer was just stupendous. So I don't think that can necessarily be improved on but I wouldn't seek to improve it, nor would I seek to reproduce it, because to me, that doesn't hold much excitement to me as a director to do something as a museum piece. Well, some, I would certainly enjoy that if that were my assignment, but I would, I would try to find a new way to do it. Um, either, uh, you know, more contemporary sort of uh, approach to the scenery. Uh, um, I don't wanna look at the text to really see what it means today and what this relationship uh, represents uh, between uh, Charity and, and uh, P.T. Barnum, uh, which a lot of the show focused on, on, their, on their romance and, and their uh, sort of opposites attract couple. Um, so I'd wanna look at that and, and see, see what I, I could bring to that from my own life and from, from what's happening around me. Um, and I, I, there's an element of that show that I'd wanna explore even further, which is the use of actor musicians, which has become more and more common in theater for financial reasons, but <laughs> I'd want to, I'd want to explore it even more as a, as a kind of core um, notion. I'd, I'd be curious to do Barnum with a, 
uh, as small a cast as possible. It'd be really fun for me to do that. Um, I'm not saying two people, I, but I think having a, a chamber version of that show would be really fun to do, very possible to do, and really interesting. So that would be one example of how I'd, I'd be interested in approaching that show. And to speak of a, a slightly smaller show you did was The Baker's Wife after that as, as an actor. Oh, yeah. And what was it like to work with Stephen Schwartz directing it after having written it? And yeah, well, Baker's Wife was uh, is, is a beautiful musical, I think, and it's uh, very unique in that there's been no ever uh, that I know of a commercial production of the show in New York City. Um, we did one of the first shows, if not the first, a sort of professional production of the show in New York, which was done under the auspices of the York Theatre Company. And uh, Lynn Taylor Corbett actually directed that, but Stephen was very, very involved. And, um, uh, or actually Stephen, maybe he did direct it and Lynn did the choreography, that might've been it. Anyway, it was a really uh, interesting production. I played the priest in, in, the, in that production and I loved the show and I loved working with Stephen. I think that was my first time working with him. And, We've uh, stayed friends and, and uh, close contacts uh, since then. And I got to be uh, my first uh, Broadway show as an actor was in the original cast of Rags, which Stephen wrote the lyrics to. And um, uh, I went on to, to finally direct a production of Rags just a couple of years ago at NYU that Stephen became a part of. And we did some some rewrites with, with Stephen around. And, and then I was also able to uh, co-conceived with Steve on a show called Magic to Do, which we uh, is still running on on uh, three uh, cruise ships right now. That's a, a review of his music all combined with with magic um, and framing each song in a context, in a new context that involved using uh, magic uh, and illusions. So I've had a lot of great experiences with him and he's a, a remarkable man and a huge, um, asset to the entertainment industry in general, not just for the work he's contributed to it uh, and his amazing profile of, of uh, a portfolio of, of work, but his, his accessibility to, to people young and old, experienced and inexperienced, and his willingness to share um, his experiences, uh, you know, is, is unsurpassed. So that was a really great experience. And I love the score to that. And most Every, every score Stephen does, I love, but but uh, his music in that particular show is um, beyond captivating. It's it's really uh, haunting. Oh yeah, I actually got to see that production of Rags, and I loved it. Oh, thank you for coming to see that. Yeah, well, my goal there, you know, we you saw we had a beautiful orchestra, and Charles Strauss um, came down to the orchestra read of that, and it was such a joy to me to sit next to him and just listen and watch him listen to his beautiful score performed quite beautifully by that you know semi-professional and and student-based uh graduate student-based orchestra it was they did a beautiful job so my my mission with that was to use as many people as possible which was really fun to do that show and um you know really focus on the immigrant experience and to do that show as i hope you um appreciated too across the street from the Triangle Shirt Factory, which uh, the building of which is, is still there. Um, it literally, this was literally a block from there that we performed the show and, and 
that was very moving to me. And I think Stephen and, and to be right close to Hester Street and all those streets where the Jewish immigrant experience sort of uh, made its base um, uh, was really, to, really stirring for me. I thought, I thought that was really a, a, a cool aspect of that production that you saw. And having been, as you said, of course, part of the original Broadway production, what do you think made it unable to succeed originally? And it's funny, I was talking about that show this morning at a, at another meeting. Just we happened to be talking about it. Um, oh, because somebody had been at uh, the final. No, no, this was an assistant of mine who had heard about the final performance of Rags or the final closing weekend of Rags. I mean, in a nutshell. Um, the prop, the, the show just hit a huge, um, what's the best way to call it? Speed bump, I guess you'd call it, um, in the pre-broad, in the rehearsal for the Broadway production, they hired a woman named Joan Micklin Silver, who directed the, a quite beautiful movie, stirring movie called Hester Street about the Jewish immigrant experience. The, the movie was made in the sixties and it certainly made her somewhat of an authority on on telling a story about the Jewish immigrant experience, which is what Rags was about. But she was not an authority on doing a musical uh, as a director. And so they let her go after the first couple of weeks of rehearsal. And so Stephen and Charles Strauss were directing the show basically up in Boston, where we did our out of town tryout at the Schubert Theater. We were there for three months. And we were working on the show every single day and they were paying us overtime to do so. And I was very excited about it. I was a pretty young guy at the time. And uh, some of the more seasoned actors were kind of like, oh no, this is, <laughs> this is really uh, tough. They brought many directors, well-known and less well-known directors up to see who was gonna take over the, the directorship of the show. There was no director listed in the program up in Boston, which was really fun and uh, interesting and Charles and Stephen did great but they they didn't present one cohesive direction of course some of the direction had been inherited by Joan uh, because by the time we start rehearsal for a Broadway show as you know many decisions have already been made such as the set the costume design and th those things don't happen um, as you're in rehearsal they happen months of planning beforehand so that physical production was already inherited and they had some beautiful, wonderfully talented artists doing doing the, the physical production of the show. But all in all, there, there was a, a gentleman named Gene Sachs who had been best known for directing all of the Neil Simon plays, but had also never done a musical before. Lord knows why they chose Gene Sachs to direct the musical when they just fired somebody because they hadn't directed a musical before. And it's not that he did a particularly bad job but it was there was only a few weeks left of previews in New York to rehearse the show they'd also replaced the choreographer along the way and others and so to answer your question the reason the show couldn't run longer or, or somehow squeeze out a longer run is they had no money left they spent every cent they had getting to opening night in New York they had no reserves and as you know with if there's anything less than a glowing review back then, at least you had to, and, and you didn't have a star that was selling tickets on their own. You really, you really depended on those reviews to get people in the door. And we had a certainly a, a, a glowing star in 
Teresa Stratus in the lead role, but nobody knew who she was in the theater. And her opera fans were not interested in seeing her in a musical, which was something I don't think they calculated on. So it was really, it was really just tough. They didn't have enough of an advance to, to pay the bills and, and keep going. So the show closed after four performances once we opened in New York. And I was part of the parade that went down Broadway. I was retelling somebody just today. I was on six foot stilts and we, Lonnie Price told the audience after the show to meet us out in the street if they wanted to protest the closing of rags with us. We thought 30 or 40 people would stick around. We came out and the whole traffic was blocked on the street, 2000 people in on 53rd street and they all walked down Broadway with us. And I was on my six foot stilt so I could look back and see the crowd. And it was very moving, if not a little naive <laughs> to think you could have stopped the closing of a show. But you know, when you're, it's not even when you're young and innocent, it's when you give yourself the way people do in the theater, you don't wanna believe that it can close if people really want it to stay open and if audiences are reacting to the show the way they did, uh, rags. Uh, and for good reason, it's a glorious score again, a, a story that needed to be told. Um, so anyway, that it was it was sweet though that we thought it would make a difference. <laughs> uh, but but uh, it it did sell some tickets for the last couple shows, and um, and there is still interest in rags. And I know Stephen is eager to revive it in, in this country again in a in a commercial way, um, that you know may may be forthcoming at some point. I hope it does. And I'd be curious to ask both from your actor and director standpoints, what do you think about the phenomenon of the out-of-town tryout, which I know is something that's become less common. And do you like to have one? Do you think it's necessary? I, I think any show benefits from repetition and, and, and reiterations. Um, and so Certainly, I think if I, I prefer that with any original piece to have an opportunity to do it out of town before doing it in town, um, if if that if if it so warrants it. But it adds, you know, it used to add a, at least a million dollars to a budget to do that. It probably is two or three times that now. Um, so it's it's expensive, and that's one of the reasons it's done less and less. What I've what I've noticed and and been able to take advantage of here or there is that there are university situations where they're now testing out new shows and they're realizing the importance and the um, benefit really of, of their students being able to originate a role in a new show and help writers figure out what the show needs to be or what it needs most in terms of rewrites. So um, that's happening more and more and that's a, a really economically viable way to try a material out now. Um, now that's not a commercial venture, obviously, uh, but but a lot of uh, productions have been investing in in university or or regional theater pro productions of shows that 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 have now become or or started to replace the out of town tryout. Um, but that they they still exist. It just depends. Each show has its own journey, as you know, and some shows. You know, if they're together enough and can avoid that step, I, I wouldn't uh, hold that against them. I have a, a smaller show that I'm a co-author of now and also directed and choreographed called Here You Come Again that is playing in regional theaters around the country now. And uh, uh, I can tell you that every production is going to be slightly different because we're learning every every time we do the show. 
at every performance, but every iteration or every production we're doing, we're learning uh, about it and rewriting the show before the next one. So uh, hopefully that's going to, um, if and when the show becomes a, a commercial uh, product. Uh, and one show that I know that you were with from readings to Broadway was Star Mites. And what were some of the changes that were made to that show during the process? Oh, gosh, you know, I mean, that was so many years ago. And yes, I was part of a readings of that and a workshop production of it. Um, the show, you know, certainly went through changes. I know um, Barry uh, Ross, who wrote the book, music and lyrics of that show, brought on uh, Stuart Ross, who's uh, still a very close friend uh, who created uh, Forever Plaid, which I was also in the original cast of. And um, Stuart added, uh, punched up a lot of the jokes and humor in the show, um, in, in the dialogue. And uh, Barry kept writing great songs. So it, it uh, also underwent changes, of course. Um, it was a completely original musical. So um, Barry could sort of take the story where he wanted to go with it. And, and I thought it was a really wonderfully successful allegory with a, with a, a female protagonist, uh, superhero character, which in itself was, I guess, a, a little ahead of his time. And, and, uh, um, but, you know, that show was one of the most, uh, produced on, uh, in the, uh, in schools and amateur circuits for years. Um, after it played in on Broadway, uh, only to replace be replaced by another show I directed the original production of Almost Maine, which for, for years uh, got produced uh, in uh, you know licensed uh, and was per performed more times than than uh, Hamlet I think or something you know that is the most produced show in in uh, schools and uh, amateur productions. So um, I think that's really it's really gratifying to remember as uh, someone who, who's been working in the theater for a long time that uh, it's so easy to think about these uh, 15 blocks on Broadway and that that's the only thing that matters. And what I've learned from my own experience and from working with people like Stephen Schwartz and Frank Wildhorn uh, multiple, multiple times is that the world is so much bigger than that. And it's so much bigger than these 15 blocks. And the, but the work you do, even in those 15 blocks, has uh, reverberates through the rest of the theatrical community and and the people that love theater uh, as a hobby, even. And that that that's worth something. That those stories continue to get told and and inspire uh, countless of other people to go into theater, tell their own story, or just uh, be moved by the story they they saw uh, in in the theater themselves what it does to their their hearts and minds as they make their way through uh their story <laughs> in, in this life so i cling to that when i when i wonder you know am i doing enough for the world um of course none of us are but but uh but um but i do think there is good that comes out of all of this and before we do talk a little more about Star Mites, I'd love to ask about Almost Maine. And did you have a sense when you were directing it at first that it could become so popular with? Uh, I, I knew I loved the show and uh, um, I loved John and still do, Cariani, who created the the, the show. Um, and I knew it, it, it had a quirkiness and organicness that... Um, 
and obviously humor that that came from John himself, of course, and his own experience. But no, I wasn't uh, clear or didn't predict that it would get done everywhere as often as it has been done, and and as often as um, uh, you know, it's it's been uh, you know revived and in in, uh, in those circles. And I think it's great that it has it. It it, it makes sense to me. Um, and uh, I think it's a testament to John really writing about real people and sort of the real, the real quirkiness of life itself and the sort of almost nature of, of life <laughs> that these characters certainly felt. And um, I remember uh, helping him come up with the title for the show. And we kept talking about like, what are these plays about? And I was saying that they're, they're, they're on the verge of change. All of these people and characters are on the verge of change, just like the town itself is on the verge of Canada. <laughs> and, and so, and it is almost Canada, it's almost Maine. And that's sort of how we came up with it. That's where he grew up in Presque Isle, Maine, which is a very Northern part of Maine. So it's sort of loosely based on that area. I, I still wanna do a movie uh, with those characters or whatever. I'm still, we, we, we did made plans at one point to, to film some portion of it. Um, and who knows that may make it may happen or may not but um i still dream about that it would be be a blast and as a director what is your casting process like and do you think that's informed by your experience as an actor as well or? oh good question charles i yes it's definitely informed by my experience as an actor and um you know the, the most important thing to me even beyond talent, although it's kind of silly to say that, obviously I want a talented actor who's can can do a good job. So it's a bare uh, minimum, but it, it's not 90% of the casting. The, it, to, to me, talent is about 50% of it. The other 50% is the most important to me, which is positive attitude, uh, easy to work with, brings joy into the room yeah. uh, uh, and likes to play with others. You know, that's really important to me as a director. Now, some other directors may not care, but most directors do. They want actors who are smart, who want to contribute, are positive influences on the rest of the company and on the work itself. And um, that's what I look for and um, try to surround myself with, not just in the cast, but the stage management team and PAs, the creative team, all of that, so that everyone's there because they want to be there. And everyone's there because they know I want their full uh, involvement and commitment and ideas. Um, and has there been a show, be it on Broadway or off, that's been especially hard to cast? Well, you know, there are obvious uh, challenges to casting a show like Amazing Grace, which I did in many productions on its way to Broadway and then the Broadway production as well. Or Memphis, which I did the out-of-town productions of for that show when you have a biracial cast and you have to get um you know the the right balance and 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 you know that's our goal now for most any show is that you want diversity and um so that's that's it's if if you're doing um you know a, a show that requires that kind of um you know you need a, a a diverse cast and you're doing the show somewhere with that's that's not naturally diverse like in Prague where I work a lot of times in in the Czech Republic 
um, it's very hard to get a diverse cast there because the population isn't that diverse. Right. And so those 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 are kind of obvious challenges. Um, but uh, you know, the show I just did a production of Godspell actually this summer at Pittsburgh CLO. And you know, our challenge with that show is we we had so many good people all doing Zoom auditions. I asked for a lot of actor musicians for that, our production of that show. And we, uh, you know, the challenge there was to pick only 10 of them <laughs> because we had so many talented people and people are so amazing now with their video auditions. They did these production elements with these auditions that were just stunning with audio singing with themselves and looping. And so it's phenomenal what actors do and what they have done and have, and have had to learn to do over these last few years. So, I mean, casting any show is, is a challenge, um, but it's an exciting challenge. And it is a big part of the job as a director. If you get the cast right, you know, they are all, they're the ones on the front line of telling any story. And uh, um, in the end, they're going to be the ones to carry your work, uh, you know, across the footlights. So you want to cast you can trust and depend on. But I, I tend to like casts that are multi-talented and have other skills. And so it's it's you know, always a challenge to find them. Casting Cinderella, which I did a national tour of and a show that played, and our production played Madison Square Garden, toured the country for three or four years. That's a tricky show to cast because even casting Cinderella, and sometimes we had star performers in that role. You know, you want somebody who can be, believably be a prince, uh, a princess, you know, in act two, but she's also got to be a scullery maid in act one and you, you've got to believe her in both roles and it was interesting casting that role um because you could it, it's harder than you think to find uh both qualities in one person um and there are similar roles like that in in various shows where you want you know both sides of a character um sometimes it's hard to find find them in the right proportion or find them at all in some actors so it's it's always but it's always that's always what's fun about it and a lot of times um actors tell you what you're looking for because they'll they'll bring in some some choice or there'll be some odd mix of of elements that you were looking for uh but that you you hadn't put your finger on and uh they'll they'll illuminate something for you and that happens often too i i've gotten better at knowing when I found someone and knowing when we haven't found somebody. And I used to just say, well, pick the best person that we got, that we saw for the role. But there are times now when I'll say, we haven't found it. We got to keep looking. Um, and uh, it's usually for a good reason, because the right person will, will come through the door, be, be the right person. And it's not like we haven't seen talented people. It's just to make the story work. And it's, it's, it's especially challenging with a new show um to cast because uh, you've got the author's description or whatever or your description of the cat the, the character but um ultimately you have to make sure that that ends up working for the play and sometimes characters uh change it to to as you realize uh you know what the play needs right I just changed in here you come again I we just changed uh, one of the offstage characters you only hear this character but it's still a very important character in the show and we changed his character completely between between the one of our out of town uh, one of one of our regional theaters and the and the second one 
um, instead of being, you know, a really nice guy, we made him kind of a narcissist, you know, between the two productions. And it affected the audience's relationship to the other character in the relationship who is on stage. And it was really interesting study in, you know, uh, casting, in this case, a voiceover. <laughs> right. And I'd love to ask you about two great directors that you worked with before, of course, becoming a great director yourself, which uh, were uh, Hal Prince on The Petrified Prince and also Theodore Mann on Anna Karenina. Oh, wow. Good choices. <laughs> well, Hal Prince was an amazing man, as you well know, uh, certainly an amazing uh, force in, in the American theater and American musical theater, especially. And he was an amazing man to watch work in the rehearsal room. He had a lot of personal charisma himself. I don't know if you ever met him, but certainly anyone who has would attest to that. Uh, so you're drawn to everything he's saying, not just because of his, uh, his long, uh, you know, resume and and success rate, but um, and he's had plenty of failures. He's very proud to talk about too, which was this is was also um, kind of moving about him. Uh, he he was really interesting to watch. He, you know, I learned many of my training as a director was really a compilation of reading and, but primarily my own experiences with directors as an actor for 30 or more years and sort of seeing what I liked and what I didn't like. And there were things about how Prince I loved and there were things I was like, mm, I don't know if actors really like it when you get up and and just say, do it like this, you know, because I knew it after I didn't like to be shown something. I like to be, I like to feel like I more organic about the choice. Um, but uh, but the way he used space, the way he used scenery and architecture, the way he conceived of things in non-literal ways, the way his mind worked was a real real education. I loved, I loved working with him. And uh, years, a few years after I worked with him, I had the honor of directing the first uh, Sweeney Todd, the first um, Sondheim piece up at the Goodspeed Opera House, where I, as I told you, I did a lot of work over the years. And so I got to direct Sweeney Todd up there. It was the first time they'd ever done a Sondheim piece at Goodspeed because they had in the past been dedicated to doing older, old fashioned musicals. Um, that's obviously changed now. And um, so I had I was asked to direct the first, uh, my first show on the main stage there which was Sweeney Todd. So I remember writing Hal Prince a letter asking for his guidance, you know, which is pretty presumptuous of me. But <laughs> Like Stephen Schwartz, uh, Hal Prince was notoriously, not notoriously, famously um, giving and forthcoming about instruction to people and especially younger people about, you know, how he did theater. So I started sort of working on the show and took my own approach to, 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 uh, to how I was using the ensemble in the show. But, but he wrote me back um, a three-page type letter sort of breaking down his philosophy about the show and his use of the ensemble in the show. And I had seen the original production on Broadway and of course was completely stunned in all, all the best ways by it, um, just loved it. And I still consider it one of my favorite musicals uh, in terms of the writing. Um, 
for sure. And uh, so my point is that he was uh, extremely giving and influential on me and, and, uh, and again, forthcoming like he is with, was with, with so many people about how he thought about things. And uh, I thought that was really moving. Ted Mann, I, I remember as being uh, a little bit more removed, and this may have been where he was in his in his, his career or, or or period in life, but still a wonderfully intellectual guy who very smart. And we were working on very challenging show, a musical based on Anna Karenina, the novel, which is a very dark Russian um, story, and. Uh, he worked with a very another very seasoned choreographer, Pat Birch, on that production, and it was really fascinating to me to watch how they, how spontaneous they were in the room, and you know I would have had to force myself to be that spontaneous. I would like I would prefer to have things planned out at least till you get in the room, then be ready to throw things out, and I've gotten much better and, and more willing to do that over the years for sure. Um, but they would sometimes really be making stuff up on the spot. And I was kind of like, wow, you can do that, I guess. But what they came up with, I thought, made the show work. It was very organic. And, you know, you didn't see, you know, in, in, in a good, in, in many ways, being a good director is being invisible. And when somebody's watching a show, you're not supposed to be necessarily aware of the direction. You should be letting, you should just be, uh, you know, absorbing, listening to, feeling the story. And, uh, you know, I have to remind myself sometimes of that. And I know there are other directors that I observe who it feels like they should remind themselves of it too sometimes if you're, if you're trying to. So, so I appreciated that about Ted Mann and he didn't try to um, make it his own statement on the show. He just tried to stay true to the material. And that's my recollection of what he was successful in doing. And the other show that you performed in on Broadway that we haven't mentioned yet is Ain't Broadway Grand. And oh my Lord. <laughs> right, right. And I would be curious to ask you a similar question about Rags as in what do you think made that unable to be as successful? It's hard to know. I mean, it was it was so traditional that I feel like I don't think it it it, it, it yeah Broadway was grand, but what is it going to be uh, now? You know, I mean, it felt like it was a little stuck in the past, and that's partly because Mitch Lee, who wrote the show and is a very was a very talented composer, was not that talented a director or that in my opinion, and while his name was not on the show as a director, he basically directed it and hired somebody who just had to step out of the way and sort of let him do most of the work. So it was kind of uncomfortable situation to be in the rehearsal room with that um, uh, situation. Although again, I respected Mitch Lee and still do and his work, uh, certainly Man of La Mancha and, um, and even the score of that show were extremely uh, amazing, just amazing. Um, but I think he got in his own way uh, in some ways with that with that production, in my opinion. Uh, um, it, the, the show had remarkable choreography by Randy Skinner, one of the best uh, dancing ensembles that, that I was not a part of. Um, 
in in on in on Broadway at the time for sure, and uh, some remarkable choreography and and uh, again beautiful physical production. So there was so much good in it, but I think in the end, it it wasn't cutting any new territory for itself, and uh, so it may have been an appetite. Uh, for the audience of, of the audience at that time for that type of show uh, hard to hard to know exactly but those are certainly some of the obstacles that the that the show faced and I would love to now ask you about a show that you directed which has become a big cult hit and fan favorite which is the wild party and how did this first come into your life and well, Andrew Lippa, as I mentioned earlier, wrote John and Jen, which was the first show I ever directed. So when he had a sketch of, of an idea for The Wild Party, I very luckily was one of the first people, not first people, but but as you know, once they had a script together, I was, the uh, I believe, one of the first people he, he approached about directing a reading of it at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center. And I did, and uh, we had a fantastic cast, including... Uh, uh, you know, Kristen Chenoweth, who who Andrew had had started her career with uh, "You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown," where she played Sally to unanimously rave reviews, and uh, so we had a great cast for the show at the Eugene O'Neill, and I was fortunate enough to be asked to continue with the project. We did a workshop under the auspices of Manhattan Theater Club a year or two later, and then in 1999 did a full production, also at Manhattan Theater Club uh, at City Center. And uh, it was just a great, great experience. I, I think the show was, uh, the, that pr production uh, was still one of the high points of my, my own career and, and, uh, and, and artistic experiences. And it's because we had an amazing team as always. Uh, and, and I think it was such a well-timed story for 1999 uh, in New York City. Um, the turn of the century, uh, time that paralleled the 1920s in which the story took place in really unique and surprising ways, and uh, a story that that did that did feel somehow forward moving, like 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 a, a new kind of musical in a way. Um, so I was proud to be a part of that, and uh, still am, and and uh, you know have many many fun stories and anecdotes from the from the creative process which uh which I still treasure to this day oh yeah and it was a show that as you were saying was so timely that there were in fact two different uh versions yeah, it sure was and and that's that's the main reason our show did not uh we were very very close to uh moving our show to a Broadway theater um it happened to be that the available theater that we would have gone into, and we drew up new plans, and we we did a, I think Jeffrey and Kevin, the two commercial producers, uh, paid thirty five or forty thousand dollars for a photo shoot that was really uh, uh, ex extravagant but fun, and and uh, all all to anticipate a Broadway transfer of the show. Um, but we would have been playing right across the street from the other show that <laughs> transferred to Broadway from the public theater. And the idea of two shows called The Wild Party, uh, neither of us wanted to back down from using the, the original title. So um, we were already getting, I was told, accidental business 
from the other, or they were getting accidental business from our show was the way it was told to me. Um, um, so, you know, the prospects of that from the producerial perspective was not very attractive um, yeah. to them. And so I think in the end, they made a tough but educated decision to not risk it which is too bad, obviously, because we all would have loved that uh, opportunity. And the other show ended up closing a month or so later. Anyway, um, who knows what would have happened if we had moved, probably both would have closed, I suppose. <laughs> but who knows, it could have uh, could have brought uh, even more publicity to both both shows, who knows, uh, could have been could have been interesting, at least for a while. But yes, it, it was a great, a great uh, show and great cast, obviously. And I know uh, Idina Menzel is an actress that you've worked with multiple times. And what is your collaboration like with her? And oh, I just love her. She's uh, and I remember, um, you know, just how uh, po again positive, giving, and dedicated she is as a as a performer. I don't know anybody that works harder uh, on herself and on her instrument and. Uh, on the material um, and yet uh, as disciplined as she is what I think she brings to the stage and continues to is an unpredictability a danger and a spontaneity that any director and of course any audience is going to thrive on because that's what live theater is is something you're seeing something you can't predict uh, hopefully in in the in in the vein of human behavior and so on and she brought that naturally not to mention, of course, her, her acting and singing, dancing skills. But um, so I loved working with her. I'd love to do it again at some point, of course, and uh, had great, great experiences with her on, on numerous shows. Um, so uh, I thought, you know, and I have and did recommend her highly to Stephen Schwartz and other people who, who asked about her following that experience. Uh, I had said the same things about her um for good reason i mean she she deserves all of the excite, excite exciting career uh, opportunities she's had she's earned every one of them i think and a uh, cast member actually of the other wild party who you worked with was eartha kit who i'd also love to know about on, on cinderella uh, she was she was a remarkable person um obviously talent and you know lived a an amazing uh, life. Um, as you know, I'm sure she was very political and had an opinion. Um, very strong character woman. But there, there was a, an old school part of Eartha Kit that I also really appreciated. If I knocked on her dressing room door, she would say, just a minute, who is it? And I'd identify myself and she'd say, just a minute. And she'd make sure her wig was back on, <laughs> put together. Like she, if she got up at 6 a.m. to do a TV interview, she'd be put together every rehearsal she came in. It was just a, a kind of respect she had for the the office of being a star um, uh, on a on a production and in a in a family uh, uh, of a of a cast of a show. And she took on that role really beautifully and was so graceful about it and was a great cast leader in that way. Um, in terms of, of respect and and uh, just ease uh, with which she she worked, um, 
an amazing sense of humor and obviously an amazing wit and intellect. Um, and just talking to her was, was, uh, was not just uh, entertaining, uh, especially when hearing the stories about you know her days in politics and uh, Washington and all of that, but but they were um, you know they were exercises really in 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 uh, you know how uh, social theater should be um, and how uh, you know the opportunities that theater and entertainers entertainers and entertainment has to color and and contribute to a, a social discourse and she was a great great example of that but again nobody worked harder and she loved uh almonds my wife has an almond farm in ah. california my my in-laws so we would always bring her these big bags of almonds because she sometimes would eat like three almonds a day or something <laughs> so she she was uh um very uh Discipline in terms of that too, amazing. So she was a great, uh, also a great influence, just in terms of the joy she she brought to people, and that she herself, I felt, experienced when in in you know, taking advantage of every day of her life. A show that I know you were involved in that didn't actually get past the developmental stages was the Skin of Our Teeth, Candor and Ebb's musical version, and so. What was that sort of like for for those who don't know it? Well, it was an honor, of course, to work with uh, John and and Fred, and it was one of Fred's last efforts as a writer. And we did have a full production of the show, actually, with Star oh. with with Eartha Kitt um, in the in the role of the fortune teller at the at the uh, at Westport Playhouse. And uh, Chris Catelli did the choreography, and um, I directed it. And we had Schuler Hensley. Playing uh, the lead, uh, playing George Antrobus, and it was a great cast and and a great uh, production. I thought it's just a tricky relationship audiences have with the the source material. The play "Skin of Our Teeth" by Thornton Wilder is an American classic, and it won the Pulitzer Prize, I believe. I could be wrong, but I think it did. Um, and as you know, it received a revival this year at Lincoln Center. Um, I love the play. But there are a lot of people who really don't <laughs> get it, <laughs> like it, and so people's relationship to the musical was very similar. They, they, you know, some didn't get it. Some of them thought it was just too wacky or whatever. But I, I loved it. But working with Fred and John again, where that was a, a huge honor and and uh, education, both. And I will never forget a couple of moments in that process where we were in Fred's apartment talking about a new song, and I was. I was pretty young director at the time, meaning I hadn't been directing that long. I wasn't necessarily that young <laughs> anymore, but I was I was a young director because I started directing when I was more in my whatever forties. And um, so I remember coming up with an idea for a new song, and it was just uncanny how how readily John and Fred took to the idea. They like with I just expected them to say that's ridiculous or what a stupid idea, but they almost didn't even question it. They they because the director had asked them to consider a new song, they started writing a song and Fred would type on an old typewriter, even though computers were around by then. 
he typed on an old typewriter and we changed a word. So we took the paper out and retyped the whole song wheel uh, just to change the one word. <laughs> it was one line or something. Anyway, it was really moving to see him typing on that old typewriter. And gosh, he was funny and such a good lyricist. And I remember him telling me once his favorite lyric, and it wasn't one of his own, it was a Sondheim lyric uh, from Forum. Today I woke too weak to walk. <laughs> that was Fred Ebb's favorite lyric. And it wasn't, you know, it was by Stephen Sondheim. And it is a great lyric. Yeah. From Hero's Song. But um, anyway, that was a real honor working with them. And uh, I obviously wish the show had had more of a life, um, but I think I understand why it didn't. Right. And Another uh, great actor that you directed was Frank Langella in The Tempest. And what was that like to be directing Shakespeare? Actually, that was a production I was in as an actor. Oh, I did not direct him in that production, but I, I played his brother in the production. I played Sebastian and uh, it was really, really uh, exciting. We had a really, I thought, beautiful production of the show in the rehearsal room. And then something happened when the show transferred to the stage. And I've seen that it doesn't happen often, but there are times when that excitement in the rehearsal room doesn't somehow make it once you add the physical production. I don't know if it was too literal to set or too, I don't know what, what happened, but it wasn't like the show was bad, but um, it just didn't have the, uh, somehow it didn't carry the excitement over. He, he was an amazing Prospero um, and got some fun anecdotes to uh, to tell about him at some point but but he was a wonderful actor and really commanding presence of course and and um uh, he was it was a real education to to watch him work as well and uh i've done a few shows at roundabout um but uh, and i directed some workshops there but i i didn't direct that production that was a british director um blanking on her name right now and so speaking of Shakespeare, one of your current projects is, of course, your own thing, the uh, new reading of the show. At yeah. I'm very excited about that, this uh, project, and I'm glad we're, we're, fi we're finally able to talk about that because um, I, um, you know, I really want to promote it and uh, promote uh, any of your listeners to, to come see and hear it. Um, of course, it's a benefit for the Red Bull Theater Company, which I love. They're a remarkable company dedicated to the classics. And uh, to, in 2019, they, uh, uh, I was fortunate to be asked to direct a revival of uh, Return to the Forbidden Planet, which is a uh, using Shakespearean text from The Tempest, combining it with American rock and roll tunes from the 50s and 60s. The show won the Olivier Award over Lion King the year it premiered wow. in London. And then I was in the first American cast of the show, being uh, playing Ariel, the robot, uh, and being the lead drummer in the show at the same time. Uh, that was off-Broadway at the, a theater that's no longer exists called the Variety Arts Theater. And so I loved that show, and we did this revival uh, of it uh, in a concert form at, to benefit Red Bull in 2019. So now, based on the success of that, um, They've chosen another uh, project, which I'm equally excited about, if not more so now. Uh, also a mid-60s, a, a mid set in the 60s, like Forbidden Planet was, 
Um, this show uh, was done in 1967, I believe, at the Orpheum Theater in Red for years there. It was a big hit off-Broadway and did have some national tours, but for some reason, the show kind of got lost in the ether, I think basically eclipsed by Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar, other shows from the era that opened right around the same time on Broadway and just had more uh, staying power for whatever reason in people's minds. But this is a really fun show with a really fun 60s score based on Shakespeare's The Twelfth Night. It's not as, uh, it, it, there's not as much sort of, um, uh, poetry or Shakespearean prose in, in the show, but there's touches of it. It's, it's more loosely based on the show, uh, in, in other words, um, than some musical versions of Shakespeare, but um, it's it's great. And we have a fantastic cast in uh, Santino Fontana, Leslie Margarita, and Eddie and Lily Cooper, who are real life brothers and sisters. Uh, they're the son and daughter of uh, Chuck Cooper, who I've also worked with, and uh, Lily and Eddie are playing, of course, the twin brother and sister, um, uh, Viola and Sebastian. So it's a fantastic cast and we have a singing group um, playing a singing group in the show called Apocalypse. Um, and uh, um, we have a great five person band and uh, it's really going to be a fun, a fun night in the theater. That's December 12th at 7.30 p.m. to benefit Red Bull Theater at Symphony Space. Uh, theater on 95th and Broadway. So I hope everybody who's listening can come check out the show. You'll have a, a gas, as I've been saying. There's lots of other um, celebrities uh, making a, a surprise appearances in the show that you will not want to miss. Um, there really is really going to be uh, some zany fun. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll be there and I'm looking forward to it a lot. Oh. And so before we uh, do wrap up, there is one more show I'd love to ask you about that we've mentioned. Sure that we mentioned a few times and that's Amazing Grace, which you of course directed on Broadway. And so how did your process with this show start? And so um, this show came about a really interesting uh, backstory. A young man named Chris Smith, uh, who was actually a police officer at the time, uh, fell upon a children's version of uh, the story of John Newton, the um, man who wrote the words to this hymn Amazing Grace and a remarkable dramatic tale of how he was actually in the slave trade in in uh, England um, and during an epiphany at sea he sort of saw the light and came to his own uh, realization that what he was doing was terribly wrong and he devoted the rest of his life to the uh, to to outlawing slavery which uh, only months before he died when he was 80 uh, Parliament finally, uh, you know, um, put an end to slavery, at least legally. <laughs> As we know, slavery still exists today, and it made the show that much more, I think, relevant and uh, important um, to do. Uh, and obviously, it was a very dramatic and moving story. And it was, uh, you know, remarkably important, you know, that we had a a cast that was all on board with telling the story and it was very sensitive material even then to bring to light dealing with slavery and the slave triangle and um, there have been a lot of shows dealing with race of course uh, uh, that take place often in the in the late uh, 20th century 
but this was a show that took place in the 16th century and and there hadn't been a lot of those and certainly not a lot of musicals um, about and so it was a really remarkable experience in every way and I was very grateful that Carolyn Rossi Copeland who was the commercial producer of the show and had produced John and Jen way back uh, my first show off Broadway um, that that she came back into my life in a major way by sharing the script with me in, in very, very early stages. And she said, I want to do this, but I want you to direct it. And I want to go through this with you. And it it started a, you know, eight year process or so where we did the the routine of readings and, and workshops. And we did an out of town tryout at the Goodspeed Opera House in a full production. Uh, and then we mounted the rest of the financing to do a Broadway show and did our out of town um, production in Chicago, uh, and then opened on Broadway, and and um, it was a just a remarkable experience. Uh, we opened the same summer that Hamilton did, <laughs> so it was a little harder to get attention after that happened. But um, uh, and and you know, uh, but again, it was a uh, really remarkable to sort of feel and see an audience's reaction to the show, which was right quite cathartic, I thought, and and. Um, uh, even to our surprise. And, and uh, we did other productions of the show, national tour and a production down in Washington, DC that sat, sat there for a while. So we were really, really grateful for that opportunity. And um, it, it again uh, is one of the, the high points of, of my career so far. And what was the process like working with writers who, as you mentioned, were not as experienced in in Broadway and in theater. Well, it's, it's interesting. And yeah, and sometimes those writers, I'm not saying this necessarily about Chris or, or any particular writer, but there is, it's interesting that some of the younger writers tend to cling to material a little more uh, fervently and passionately than some of the more experienced older writers. And I've tried to figure out in more detail why that is. And I have, I guess, theories I won't go into here, but but um, it was, it was, so that's some things. Sometimes you have to deal with that as as a as a director of new works. Um, so uh, that's just that's not uniform and is not the case in every case by any means. Um, but 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 it's something I've I've noticed uh, and and it's and it's interesting. Um, most of the time, and certainly this was the case in Amazing Grace. Chris was more than open to input from me and he had a, a, a co-author Arthur Jerome who had spent decades in the theater who sadly just passed last year um, and he was a brilliant playwright brilliant mind and a brilliant diplomat and uh, Chris was like a sponge and he he just loved absorbing stuff from Arthur and from me but he also had his own vision for the show which I applauded obviously, and got on board with, uh, obviously, because I was, that's my job as a director, and um, I really uh, proud of Chris and the uh, the steps he took um, with the show, and, and uh, um, the trust that he put in me and, and Arthur to, to help him make them. And to, um, to bring us up sort of to the present day, what was the experience of the quarantine like for you, both personally and professionally, and that. Well, uh, really good question as well. And um, I have to say it was it was <laughs> it, it was 
more positive than than many. I, I have nothing to complain about, really. We had we were very lucky. I have two children. My wife and I uh, sort of saw the writing on the walls uh, some, earlier than some, and my wife certainly did. I was saying, "Oh, I've got a workshop happening next week," and she said, "I'm I'm buying plane tickets to go home to California." Um, I don't know how long we're going to be there, but sh this was before Broadway closed down. I said, okay, and sure enough, within the next two days, everything was shutting down. We took a plane out to C California and my in-laws had a cabin they had built in the middle of nowhere for just such a time. <laughs> this. And so we quarantined in that cabin for four or five months. Um, and we would take uh, every, once we'd gone through the quarantine process, uh, we'd stay within our bubble, but we'd go to their farm an hour and a half, two hours away to get supplies. There was no washing machine or dryer or stuff like that. So it was really kind of fun because I, up to that point, had been traveling very often. And uh, sometimes it was not unusual for me to be gone 200 to 225 or 50 days out of the year. Um, and that's not great when you're having kids and you're raising kids. My wife was remarkable. Um, dealing with that. So it was nice to be literally uh, segregated from the rest of the world and, 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 and with each other. And so we were really, it was a nice family time. But in addition, there was other work that started cropping up due to the, uh, due to COVID in ways. Um, the show I had been working on for three years in China got greenlit uh, for full production in China the day Broadway shut down. So I kicked into high gear doing that. So there was many, many Zoom meetings a week for that show. And I spent then six months of, of, of that year, 2020 and 2021, uh, in China um, doing a full production where I had to re-quarantine, of course, going in and out of China, um, sometimes for four weeks at, at a time, uh, st stuck in a hotel room. So it had its hardships, but I never complained because I knew... I was uh, one of the rare few that was able to keep working. In addition, I got some writing work that I had never done before, and I'm now much more comfortable um, proposing myself as a book writer or co-book writer on shows and have three or four credits to my name now for doing so, including the show that we won a PPP grant that wouldn't have been there without COVID to write called Here You Come Again, which is a show where my wife plays Dolly Parton and... Um, there's another actor in the show who plays a, a guy who's quarantining in the attic of his childhood home in Texas because he's just broken up with a relationship in New York and he doesn't know what to do with his life. And uh, a ter terrible thing happens and he puts his Dolly Parton on record saying, praying in a way for her to help him. And she bursts through a poster that's on the wall in his room and basically has a, a two hour intervention with him um, where she puts his life back in order. So it's not about Dolly Parton, but Dolly is the main character in the show uh, with, with uh, Kev Kevin. So we wrote the show in a PPP grant and our lawyer submitted it to Dolly's lawyer. And six months later, lo and behold, she they write back and said she loves the show and she gave us the grand rights to all her music and so we're now doing the show in seven or eight different theaters around the country and trying to align things for what's next. So uh, that all came from the COVID experience as well. And my wife, while she was, uh, you know, not able to do TV and film, which she's used to doing quite a bit of as an actress, um, she started uh, focusing on, on a 
hobby she had as, as a kid doing pressed flower art. And there were many wildfires around us. So she was pricking and pressing flowers. And that's developed into a whole new business for her. In addition to her acting career, which is very busy too. She is um, uh, got a new brand called Domain of the Flowerings, um, where she's selling high-end uh, products, whether it's wallpaper, uh, art for your wall, um, you know, all the, she's getting into all kinds of different applications of her artwork on in fashion and and so on. So, all of this came from from this this period. So, I'd say we were more than lucky in terms of you know how we've survived it. Our kids, you know, were very adaptable, and um, I it's clear that they prefer in person experiences. <laughs> that became clear when they came back to school, um, especially. Uh, so they did great dealing with being on, online, but um, we were very lucky uh, to to have had that all those experiences. And the very last question I'd love to ask you is: With such a great career as an as an actor and as a director, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out in the theater? Well, I guess the first advice I always give is is do, don't talk about it, don't. don't don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Don't dream about it. Just do it. Just get up and make sure you do something every day to further your either instruction or your dreams. Uh, um, and and don't be look at every obstacle as an opportunity to find a new way um, to to getting whatever you need. And and um, if you want to direct, direct. Find a way to find a, a piece to direct and direct it. <laughs> you can do it on any level of production. Um, and and uh, it's all about experience. And and um, and that would be the second thing is to, to understand that you don't have to know somebody going into the business. The people that you've grown up with are your contacts. Your friends are your contacts, your schoolmates. Those become people that will offer you jobs in the future. Stay in touch with them. It's a people business like any business is. And so be outgoing, uh, stay in touch with people, be brave, don't hold back, live for the moment. And don't forget to live your life too, because that's what you're going to draw on as an artist is, is, yeah. is living life. So make sure you leave time for that as well, to have relationships and have adventures um, and, and have other interests ideally as well because those are all they those all make up who you are and uh none of us wants to go to our grave thinking oh i could have spent you know more time with my kids or more time with my wife or my partner or whatever so that's important too so balance uh and and don't don't wait initiate i always say that's a great piece of advice. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an honor to, to talk hey, to you. Hey, it's been great to talk to you, Charles. I really appreciate your, your interest and uh, thanks for promoting your own thing. Uh, and I uh, hope I look forward to seeing you there. Oh, me too. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to buy your tickets for your own thing. I hope to see you all there. And also to come back next time when I am joined by Julianne Boyd.
Julianne Boyd recently retired after a 27-year tenure as the founder and artistic director of the Barrington Stage Company in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. The Broadway productions of On the Town, American Sun, Mr. Saturday Night, and the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee are among the shows to originate at Barrington Stage, and it has also drawn much attention for its all-star summer productions of such shows as Mame, West Side Story, Follies, Company, which starred Aaron Tveit, Pirates of Penzance, The Royal Family of Broadway, and last season's A Little Night Music. In addition to this, though, Julianne was also the director of Onward Victoria and UB on Broadway, as well as the off-Broadway hit A My Name is Alice. You won't want to miss this episode, so make sure to tune back in for it, and thanks for listening.